In a world full of smart devices, shouldn't your printer be smart too? It is with HP+. These printers know when they're running low, so you always get the ink you need delivered right when you need it. Plus, you save up to 50% on ink, so you can print whatever you want, as much as you want, anytime you want. Huh, that is pretty smart. Get six months free of instant ink when you choose HP+. Conditions apply. Visit hp.com smart for details. In a world full of smart devices, shouldn't your printer be smart too? It is with HP+. These printers know when they're running low, so you always get the ink you need delivered right when you need it. Plus, you save up to 50% on ink, so you can print whatever you want, as much as you want, anytime you want. Huh, that is pretty smart. Get six months free of instant ink when you choose HP+. Conditions apply. Visit hp.com smart for details. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. The movie Babe is very, very important in my family. And what takes the movie from good to great is the humanity and the wisdom in James Cromwell's Farmer Hoggett. Cromwell was already in his 50s when Babe came out. It's easy to forget that his weathered face was still a fresh one in Hollywood. He was a working actor. He played Archie Bunker's buddy Screech Cunningham in All in the Family. But Babe was his breakthrough role. And the moment he broke through, he put his celebrity to work. Cromwell might be the most committed activist in Hollywood. Not just fundraisers and photo ops. Cromwell's in the streets and chained to fences. He's been arrested five times. Both art and politics are in James Cromwell's blood. Father, mother, grandmother, um, stepmother, all actors. And you grew up around that? I grew up, yeah, I grew up until I was six. They were divorced when I was six. Uh, and so I moved with my mother back east. I think I was probably nine uh, when I went out for the first time with him to Hollywood. And, and then he was black, in 53, he was blacklisted. So he came east. You uh, got back into the theater? Yeah, he was in uh, Mary Mary and Sabrina Affair. Uh, so two very long-running plays. I think they each ran. Acting. Three, acting. So for people who don't understand that, the, the Hollywood blacklist was, to a large degree, the Hollywood blacklist. You can go elsewhere and work. It didn't no, affect you in the not, theater? No, not everybody. Right. It, he had testified, but he had left New York before the Communist Party really got organized. So he had nothing to say. It was always my father's opinion. It's my opinion, too, that really the blacklist was directed not so much at communists, but principally, first of all, Jews, and then secondly, people who had come back from the Second World War who had a different view about what America, what was happening in America, because they could see what Eisenhower described as the military-industrial yes. complex, and they could also see Empire. The, yeah, the discrepancy between what America supposedly stood for and what it actually did. Obviously, what was happening to the people of color, Indian people, women's rights, it, not, nothing existed. It was all people who knew better, people who agreed with a more liberal and democratic country, kept their mouths shut mm. so as not to make waves. As you know, the both all three unions did not support the people who belonged to those unions who were attacked by UAC. Howard Hughes had bought the studio. And because my father had testified, he thought of my father as a communist and wanted him out, but couldn't fire him because of the contract. So he gave him a film to direct called I Married a Communist. And my father knew what he was doing and said, listen, I'll direct this, but you can't, I can't direct the script. You have to rewrite this. Well, he got writer after writer. Nobody could fix this. It was a piece of shit. 
It was just propaganda until finally he settled. The, it was a million-dollar contract back in 53. Mm. Settled the whole thing. My father bought a building in Beverly Hills, came back and did a play with Henry Fonda called Point of No Return about J.P. Marquand and won a Tony. So his first time back on the stage, he won a Tony. And then went on to do many, many plays in New York until basically— um, Did I you go back to Hollywood? He swore that he would never go back, but he did towards the end of his life. I'm not sure exactly why. And they did two of Robert Altman's pictures, uh, Three Women and The Wedding. Do you get a sense that both acting for you and, and activism for you, because of what your father went through with the uh, being blacklisted, do you find that that had that impact on you in your life? He is a, a role model, obviously. I, I loved um, – what I knew of his principles, what he stood for. Um, he had a very jaundiced view of Hollywood, which I share. He was very frustrated all his life. Uh, he was a very good director, but he didn't promote himself the way Ford and Hawks did, who had publicists. And so he didn't, he sort of was down the food chain as far as the projects. All that. Mm. Kind of, and then, of course, what he went through in the studio system, you know, with so. Oh, as, the personality. As you know, <laughs> as you well know. And, uh, and you, you encapsulate, I mean, not, I don't want to dwell on this because I want to talk about more positive things, but give me an example of what your frustration with the town has been. <laughs> and I'll give you mine. Okay. The emphasis on celebrity, the emphasis on profit, packaging, an independent voice. John Wells telling me he wrote a beautiful story about a man who lost his job. Um, in in 2008 and had to go live with his, um, his in-laws selling telephones. He had been a big executive. And what that, the, the tension in his family, what it did to him personally, the studio, he had a deal, first look with uh, Warners. And Warner said, yeah, that's great. Great. We'll put Tom Cruise in it. John said, no, no, wait a minute. This is a little film. You put Tom in it. The accountants are going to tell you that you got to be. It's got to yeah, be sixty-five. Capsizes the film. It capsizes yeah. the film. And so, what does it do? It goes into there. Nobody. He can't get it out. It's gone. The the business is completely taken over by non-creative people. It's right. non-creative people from top to bottom. It's marketing people and finance yeah. people. They don't even like movies. Yeah. These guys aren't in the movie business. No, they'd like to just do the 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 money part, the producing part, and then have no product at all and go on to the next <laughs> raising money for the next one. If they could be making money doing something else, they That's, would. Yeah. You know? Now, when acting for you professionally, you, did you study somewhere? I left Middlebury where I was at college and came and studied with uh, Herbert Berghoff at the HBC and did a play with he and Uda and Sandy Dennis. Then my father, uh, Ruth, was touring. My stepmother, Ruth Nelson, was touring. Um, Long Day's Journey, uh, and they had played Pittsburgh, so they had gone to Carnegie Tech, and my father really wanted me to have an education, the one that he didn't have. So I went there for mm, about two and a half years, left that. So you didn't well. finish Middlebury, you no, transferred. I transferred right. to Carnegie Tech, and then I didn't make it all the way through Carnegie Tech either. I caused a disaster, and uh, but that's, that's okay. Did you come into New York to start your career? Uh, no, I didn't. My father, he had done a play at Cleveland, and got to know the man who ran Cleveland, K.L. Molo. And so he said, there's a wonderful opportunity. You can go uh, as a journeyman and act and stage manage. And you, I'm going to direct a play, he said, so you can be my stage manager. So I started at Cleveland. And then that summer, um, after Kennedy was killed, um, 
That summer, I went to uh, Europe with uh, directors from all over the world. It was the 400th anniversary of Shakespeare's birth. So I had all these incredible people who ran their companies in, you know, in Slovenia and all these wonderful directors and uh, did that. And when I came back, he had cut out a little squib from the New York Times that a theater that was touring the South needed actors and directors. And he said, go down and audition for it, which I did, got the job, arrived in New Orleans, met by the head of the theater, taken to my place where we were going to stay. And on the side of the of the next to the door was a plaque which said coloreds only and i thought well it's a throwback to the civil war why they keep must leave these things up went up there a nice black lady showed us to our room we went out to a restaurant and promptly got thrown out of the restaurant because john o'neill who was the head of the theater was black and i was white and the guy came over and he was shaking and said i gotta ask you to leave my art reaction it's the Irish part. Yes. It's always two. Yeah. Stand up. Says John, who? John said, John said, no, 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 I'll handle it. And advised the guy that he was violating our civil rights. And uh, and that was my introduction to a company that toured Mississippi, Alabama, Tennessee, and Georgia during the height of the civil rights movement. Doing Shakespeare? No, doing Waiting for Gatto and Pearly Victorious, two <laughs> opposite extremes, to people who had never seen television, never probably never seen a movie. 63, 64? 63, 64. And uh, I was actually, I had gone to school with a guy, um, and I didn't know he was there, Mickey Schwerner, and that was Schwerner, Cheney, and Goodman. Right, right, right. right, right, right and right. we knew as we were in Mississippi traveling around, that Mickey was, they were missing, but I didn't know it was Mickey until much later. Uh, and they hadn't been found in the levee they'd been buried in. So in the, in the early part of your career, was there a part of you that you said, oh, the theater is more my calling and I didn't, you didn't really want to go out to Hollywood and try to make films and do TV shows? No. The theater was more your, well, to your liking? First of all, it was, I was um, emotionally retarded, uh, so I wanted to design sports cars. And I went to Middlebury as a part of a 3-2 program, you went to RPI and you got both degrees. In engineering. In engineering. And I wanted to design sports cars. That was it. My father was making a picture in Sweden with Ingmar Bergman's, uh, Mybert Nilsson, Eva Dahlbeck, and Sven Nykvist was the cameraman. And I went. I was now 18. And I looked around. I looked at them. And we went out to Mybert's house. And people are articulate and attractive and and loquacious sophisticated and sophisticated and i thought <laughs> shit man this is i got to do this i got to do this i got to hang out with and those I, gotta, I gotta go with those people so it only took me about a month to get you know frustrated with the theater <laughs> department at middlebury not that i was and i knew anything and then went to new york and uh, and herbert was herbert was actually ver- really um, central to my I mean, for all his uh, shenanigans, uh, I really loved him and I adored Uda. When you meet with Herbert, what was your idea of what acting was for you? Like, what was your really? Because I have my own story about that, but tell me, like, when you got there, was it like, because you hear men sit there and go, I was going to pick up girls. I was going to, you know, I was going to. I think pick up was the first. That was first. On yeah, the list. yeah. Uh, meet my, women. My, my, old, my oldest friend in this town is a, a, a Swiss actress, and she was the book. Uh, she ran the book, and I thought she was the cat's pajamas. And we've we've been dearest yeah. friends. <laughs> and, lasting relationships. Yeah, la- long time. What was Uda like? Oh, Uda's, man, <laughs> Uda's magnificent. You know, f- um, intense, um, implacable, brave, um, smart, 
I, I remember the last time I saw her, she was doing a play. I, I went to see her off Broadway. Um, I think it's called Mrs. Klein, about a psychologist. And uh, I waited for her, and she came out, and I started to talk to her, and I wept. Yeah, I wept. I, I, I it, she meant so much. Oh. Um, I did a TV series, and I had to choose between a job that was a very good job and a very challenging piece and a great role for me early in my career, or to do a TV series, which was a very successful show that was uh, nothing to be ashamed of, but the real opportunity was I was going to play Julie Harris's son. Ooh. And I did that instead for a good. year. I passed on what good was the better role yeah. to spend a year and a half with, with her you. and be around her. And oh my God, was the yeah. opportunity of a lifetime. Wonderful. Was the opportunity She's another, another magic woman. But when you do your work compared to then, I mean, how was that path changed for you as an actor? Well, I went to tech and I had a wonderful teacher the first year before he got fired, which was basically, you know, an actor prepares the method. Um, and, um, a lot of it I got, I think, subliminally through my father and mother, watching my father and watching my mother, stepmother, um, and then actually doing for the 10 years that I did resident theater, uh, not taking acting classes, but watching people. That is act- make, that's the acting class. Making your own mistakes. Performing. Be, being out on stage. In terms of acting, I think I learned, I learned a lot because John Voigt brought Sandy Meisner's repeat exercise to Hollywood. He altered it a little. And I did that class with Richard and Jill Clayburgh, Richard Dreyfus and Jill Clayburgh and a lot of other people who were working. And I happen to really love the repeat exercise. I think it has great value. And I love the fact that it's not taught by a teacher. Then, of course, I got a magnificent, the best teacher I've ever had, Milton Katselis. I studied with Katselis. Who was, I just adored him. And tell me why. Why did I love Milton? No, okay. okay. <laughs> Kitsellis is in his class. I took his class for like maybe nine months, and then I left. And I'll never—I mean, have many memories of him. One was I was working at the time doing a, 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 a pickup. I did a pilot, and they picked up eight episodes, and we were shooting. And I missed some of the classes. This is like an 83, 84, mm. you know. And my then girlfriend was taking class. We go to that Beverly Hills theater of his yeah, Saturday class, and we we went to I think I went to a Thursday nights or something. Uh-huh. So I go some night, and uh, this one guy gets up and he does the scene, and he and he, and he pulls the chair down to get the comments from Katsellis, yeah. and Katsellis begins, you know, what do you think, and what yeah, were you going always. for? You know, always with you, ref- you reflect back, and then he starts to say things, and the guy starts to kind of debate him, and Katsellis. Had a great, like, with a big, I mean, Katsellis was a bear of a man yeah. and a very, you know, very uh, intense guy. But it's nonetheless, kind of, he really laid back and he said, he said, he said, we're not here to debate my opinions with you. He said, you pay the money, you come here, I give you my opinions. That's why we're here, for me to give you my opinions. And, and I'm sitting there going, because I had taken Strasbourg in New York yeah. uh, for a, a year and a half and studied privately with people in New York. And, um, and I'm there. And I'll never forget this. I did a scene from uh, How I Got That Story by Emlyn Gray, where there was the person that was the press, and then there was the person that they called the event. And so the one guy's the reporter, and the other guy plays like 32 different characters. You play the Vietnamese dictator's wife. I did that in this class. And he walks up to me one, he walks up behind me. I don't even know he's here, he walks up behind me, whispering, it was Katsellis. And the only thing he ever said to me, the whole class, he whispers in my ear, he goes, Lose eight pounds. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. He walked away. I so should t- tell you mine. Tell me. Uh, 
I had done Hamlet. I pr- produced my own production of Hamlet because no one was ever in L.A. in L.A. Right. in '84. And uh, where'd you play it? We played it at a little theater uh, down on Santa Monica Boulevard. Right. Sometimes we had more people on stage than we did in the audience. Uh, it was the Olympic Theater Festival, so the RSC had come and they were playing out in UCLA. No one came to ours, but uh, I had a I had a very interesting time. Learned quite a bit, um, and. Then subsequent to that, about a oh, couple of years later, about a year later, Milton did a Shakespeare class uh, um, because he was working on Romeo and Juliet, which I also did with him. And I had was going to do the nunnery scene, and I had done it one time uh, for him in the class. And he said, um, you don't know what this play's about. And I said, Milton... I have done this play seven times. Don't don't tell me that I don't know. He said, oh, no, no, no. You know what it is up here in your head. You know intellectually what this play is about, but you don't know what what it is here in your heart. I want you to go do do the scene again. He came behind me and put his hands on my head and squeezed as hard as he could and said, now say to be or not to be. Well, I didn't have to get but two words out when I understood what he was driving at, the pressure. So... I, unfortunately, I didn't get to rehearse in the intervening week. So I, this, the girl who was playing Ophelia, she just thought that it would be the same. I went outside to do push-ups on my knuckles in the driveway to get myself cranked up. And as I was doing it, the door closed to the theater <laughs> and locked. Now I'm Hamlet is now locked out of the nunnery scene, and I realize that either I'm going to have to knock on the door and somebody's going to have to come and let Hamlet in, which he might very well say, go, go let Hamlet in, or I'm going to have to run around the front like an idiot and come the wrong way. All of a sudden, I hear footsteps. It's Milton. I have no idea how he knows. He just clicks the door open. He doesn't say anything to me. I can hardly see him. And I come on. Now I am so freaked. You're playing jacked now. <laughs> oh, Jesus, I was on. And I, everything completely changed in the scene. She now pursued me. I kept retreating until I finally hit her. I hit her really hard in the face. Uh, and I, I finally got what this scene was about. And that was, that was Milton. That was both what he had done showing me physically what was involved, and then because I used an event that was happening to me in real time, and I laid the verse on top of that, which, of course, is what the RSC, when they work with the sonnets, that's what they do. Um, so I learned a lot. And I got to say, I just want to one of the lessons that I learned is something that you said. I remember seeing, I think you had did a master's class or you, you did some class and you were describing that when you came to a, there was a scene in which you had to walk down a corridor. The director said, okay, so Alec, this is what you're going to do. You're going to walk down this corridor. You're going to reach, you're going to open the door. You're going to step into the room. You're going to see her on the floor bleeding. You're going to go over to her. You're going to get down. You're going to pick her up. I'm going to follow you with the steady cam. You're going to hold her in your arms, and then you're going to, you're going to weep. And you said, no, I'm not, because I know what's going to happen. I'm going to go down. I'm going to get all cranked up to do this scene. I'm going to go down the hall. You're going to open the door. The camera's going to hit the side of the thing. You're going to yell, cut. We're going to do that three and four times. Yeah. By the time by the time I get to pick her up, I'll have nothing left. Yeah. This is what you're going to do. You're going to take me down the hall. You're going to cut. 
You're going to open the door. You're going to cut. So, in other words, being able—that's what I love. I can't believe you remember that. Oh yeah, from Heaven's Prisoners. Yeah, when they shot my wife Kelly Lynch to pieces, and I said, "You're going to come in like a medium shot, two cameras, medium and tight on me when I scoop her up and start crying." Yeah, that's a separate shot. That's it. Because you have to protect yourself. And Milton's whole focus was on. For those who don't know Milton, it's. He said, "You don't have an obligation to the play." You don't have an obligation to the playwright or the producer or whatever. You have only one obligation. That's to your own genius. And whatever that is, it has to be expressed. Nobody gives a shit whether you feel, whether your interpretation of this play is really wonderful and you're trying to get at it. If you're not at home, if you're not engaged, there's no performance. There's nobody there. There's nobody to watch. And that's what I loved about it. Now, we've spent... The bulk of this time talking about your work in the theater and studying acting. We have other subjects to cover now. I'm going to jerk the steering wheel now down this other road. Stretch Cunningham was your breakout role. You were doing film and TV before you did all the family? No, 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 no. That was the first thing. That was it. Yeah, I had come. I had gone to CBS because a guy I had been at Middlebury with, uh, Michael Severide, his father was Eric Severide. Eric Severide. And and Eric and Michael had been really great with me, and he had introduced me to the woman who was casting him. For he was a producer-director? No, no. He, I think he was in the news department. I don't know oh, what he, actually what he was doing. Oh, he's at CBS. Uh, yeah, at CBS. Uh, so my agent called me one day and said, get over to, to, uh, to uh, CBS right away. Uh, and they got the show. Uh, so I went over there. I had never seen All in the Family. And I read for this woman who had interviewed me and found the only I had sort of uh, fudged on my resume that I had played Claudius at Stratford. I did actually go on as Claudius, but I was the understudy. She said, you did Claudius at Stratford? And I'm like, I've probably (laughs) flushed. And so she at four o'clock or five o'clock in the afternoon on a Friday, I read for her. She says, fine. No, wait, the director will be down. I read for the director. The director said, come on, let's go up and meet Norman. And the next day I'm doing Stretch Cunningham. And I, I don't know what occurred to me. I I think I had in my head Art Carney. You know, I'm big. Come on, okay. I'm a guy in the thing. I'm talking hey, like Hey, Ralph. Hey, Ralphie. You're doing Ralphie. <laughs> so, so I guess I did that day. And, and Norman loved it. And the first show I did, Carol had quit. And he was holding the show up. And so and he did eventually come back. He came back because Norman said, what am I supposed to say to Jean? She's half the show. And so we were actually rehearsing the episode where he was found dead in Buffalo. He and I had gone to Buffalo on a conference and he settled. But I had all the best lines. And my first time that I did it, uh, Norman did the warm up. You know, you, you sort of get the audience going. And someone in the audience raised their hand at the first intermission and said, when are you going to give the tall guy his own series? So on an elevator ride down to rehearse that last bit with when he finally settled, some the producer said, you want to do uh, Hot El Baltimore? We got this series. So I now I have another series. I have Hot Hot El Baltimore, and I'm originating this part. Did Norman do that show? Yeah. Yeah. Really wonderful people. Yeah. You know, we got banned in four or five cities because it was about there were there were whores and gay people in yeah, it based and, on the play based on the play uh, but it was ex- an extraordinary did time. you love gene oh yeah absolutely oh oh, oh absolutely oh, what a great cast oh yeah wonderful 
What a great kid. Because people don't realize, people who even remember Carol O'Connor don't remember movies like him playing the villain in Point Blank. Oh, he's he's He was grim. such a polished actor. Wonderful actor. And he, and he was such a uh, such an elegant guy and yeah. a very urbane guy. Yeah. And nothing like that. I mean, in real life, he was nothing like that. I mean, people told me that he was, there was a part of him that he was really sad he'd created that character. Oh, he was he was bereft. Yeah. Because I, was, I saw him on stage doing something when the audience said, we want Archie. And you could see... Crestfallen. Yeah, Crestfallen. I'm stuck. Henry Winkler, the same. I mean, and the thing is, he saved me from that because Norman wanted to keep me on as Stretch Cunningham, but it didn't work out story-wise. And I would go back after a couple of years. I went to Norman and I said, you know, I really would like to do this show. And he said, Jamie, I asked Carol for you to come back. And Carol, no, says, no, I don't want him. And, oh, really? Yeah. And I'm sitting there. I'm standing with Sally and Carol is walking towards us and Sally said, uh, Carol, Jamie Jamie wants to come back on the show. And he, he went like this. He said, he's better off where he is. Which meant that instead of doing Stretch Cunningham for four or five years, which would have finished me as an actor, I got just enough and another than another series. So You felt he was doing you a favor. Oh, incredible. He wasn't blackballing said, you because he no, was no, jealous of he, you. He knew exactly. Oh, if this kid wants a career... The way to do that is not get stuck into some Don't characterization. Do Don't do what I did. Actor and activist James Cromwell. Cromwell is now respected as much for his environmental and animal rights activism as for his Hollywood career. Similarly, few people have done as much to advocate for a more sustainable plant-based food system as my guest Michael Pollan. We all have power. We get three votes a day, you know, and people are voting in a different way for a different kind of food system. I mean, eating is a political act. And um, those of us who can afford to buy the sustainable chicken and beef or or whatever, you know, not everyone has the same vote. And that's unfortunate. And that's why voting with your fork is not – we also need to vote with our votes. And we need new policies without question. More from Michael Pollan at heresthething.org. After the break, James Cromwell talks about his start in the movies and his experience in a New York State prison. Hi, I'm Alec Baldwin. Don't you think it's cool to care? Carrie Yuma knows fast fashion's not sustainable and decided to spin that conscious mindset to create high-quality, low-impact sneakers. Their best-selling Akka style is the perfect, durable sneaker for dressing up or down, pairing a fresh look with broken-in level comfort. Akka is made with organic cotton canvas and ethically sourced rubber, and every pair comes with Karayuma's signature cork and Mamona oil insoles. Akka's already found its way into my summer shoe rotation. Find your pair and choose from a range of bold and beautiful colors. Right now, there's 15% off at C-A-R-I-U-M-A dot com slash Alec. With how much we rely on our devices, it's easy to forget about the hardware we're born with. Take ears. Like fingerprints, your ears are totally unique. Too bad your earbuds aren't. Unless you've got Ultimate Ears Fits True Wireless Custom Fit Earbuds. Ultimate Ears Fits offer premium sound and all-day comfort. Their groundbreaking lifeform technology guarantees a perfect fit in only 60 seconds. Just put in the earbuds, connect to the app, and watch as the purple LEDs form the earbuds to your unique shape. 
With eight hours of continuous playback on a single charge and up to 20 hours with the charging case, Ultimate Ears Fits are the perfect choice for listening to your favorite music and podcast all day long without pain or discomfort. For a limited time, get 15% off above the current offer of your pair of Ultimate Ears Fits True Wireless Earbuds at ue.com slash fits. Just use promo code FITS at checkout. That's 15% off the current offer with promo code FITS at ue.com slash FITS. This is Alec Baldwin. You're listening to Here's the Thing. It's 1975. James Cromwell is making a living on stage and on TV. Now it's time to try his hand in Hollywood. The first film I went for was Murder by Death, Neil Simon and... And I auditioned and did a screen test and uh, got the part. It's Maggie Smith, David Niven, Alec Guinness, um, Elsa Lanchester, uh, Nancy Walker, uh, Peter Falk, Peter Sellers. Everybody is in this thing, you know. And we're 11 weeks in a studio all together in every scene. So I'm there every day with those people. Who did you? Who were you fond of? Like people of my own generation? There's some I like. You mm. know, I, I worship Daniel Day-Lewis. Mm. I worship Colin Farrell. Mm. You know, there's like three or four of them that I really, really, Gary Oldman, I just worship them for their talent. So when you're doing that film, yeah. who, who, would you, who did you have a, a really vivid memory of somebody? Well, who, Alec was very dear because Alec and they had a, you know, they had one of those press uh, junkets, you know, before... And Alex said, I'm really delighted to be working with two wonderful young American actors, James Cromwell and Richard Narita, who played Peter Sellers. He was uh, Charlie Chan, number one son. And I played Hercule Poirot, Jimmy Coco's <laughs> chauffeur. So right away, the press wanted to know us. And, and so, I, so Coco played Hercule, Hercule Poirot. 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 Alec was always very, very supportive of me. I, I didn't go to the house, but we met in London a number of times. I adored him. David Niven, my father, had given him his first job. So David was extraordinary. I watched Truman Capote, who who absolutely froze on camera. But when he wasn't on camera, when he was sitting around, it was he, a delight. He could he could he could charm the paint off the wall and get them to talk. I loved him. I was in love with Maggie Smith. I I couldn't take my eyes off her. I just subsequently got to know her pretty well. Um, So there was just a really great Nancy Walker, very dear friend. I love Nancy. Does everything become from that point on? Because you talk about you're too tall to play, to be the leading man and you're going to play the character man. Does everything become character man parts in the movies for the years to come? Well, there was a, there was an event. At the end of the shooting, Ray wanted to publicize this film. He wanted to get some some heat. Ray? Ray Stark. Ray Stark. And so he invited all the name people to a party at his house, which was Humphrey Bogart's old house off of Sunset, and did not invite Richard Narita and James Cromwell. So Eileen Brennan said, listen, Jamie, I'm going to go and I'm going to drink, and I don't want to drive home, so you drive me. And we'll get there, and, and, and you'll be fine. You'll be there in the room because it's going to be incredible. Everybody in Hollywood is going to be there. So I said, fine. We got there. We were early. Uh, Ray comes down says, oh, Eileen, nice to see you. Kisses her, blah, 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 and turns to me and goes, hi, uh, Ray Stark. And Eileen says, Ray, are you nuts? He's been on the picture 11 weeks. Have you nuts? It's James Cromwell. He didn't want me in the room. Now we have everybody in the room. Uh, uh, Sean Connery and Michael Caine had just done an episode of the Griffith Show, 
And Sean goes, hates it. Like he's, he's still fuming. And Michael loves it because he loves to talk and tell stories. So he had a great time. So we all sit around and watch that. But then they showed a rough cut of a scene from the movie, which was not either color corrected. It had no track. Uh, and he showed it. He had, Ray had a Picasso about the size, not as big as Guernica, but almost. And it was on wires behind a high boy. And when they wanted to show the picture, they dropped the Picasso down but below the high boy. He had the great, one of those great art collections. You know, they had a, wow. they had a moor in, the, in, the, in a pool for the moor. Uh, they had Giacometti. They had Arp. They had everybody all on every wall. And they showed the picture, and Maggie and Alec were so—Maggie said, I'm going to the bathroom. I'm not going to see this. I don't want to see this. I don't want to be here. Uh, Alec was livid. Uh, Peter had not come to the event. And so they showed this picture, and, of course, everybody laughed at the setup lines, not the jokes, because they were laughing because they knew they had to laugh. And it killed the picture, basically. They looked at it, those people, you know, Evans and the other people, and said, he hasn't got anything. It's nothing. It's no comedy. It's, it's too arch. It's too sophisticated. Nobody will get it. And basically killed this picture. It's become a cult classic. But, um, and then uh, we stayed. We stayed so long. Michael Caine, Hackman. Um, um, uh, <laughs> what a crowd. <laughs> uh, yeah, what a crowd. Eileen, me, uh, and Sean Connery stay so late that the Starks sent a maid down to tell us you that must leave really now. have to leave. You gotta go and now. on the way out, Sean says to, oh, Dustin Hoffman was there. He says to Dustin, oh, you got to see my car, a, a great car. Oh, it's a wonderful car. It's a magnificent. So I'm thinking in my head, you know, Jesus, got a Ferrari. An Aston Martin. Oh, it's wonderful. Yes. And we walk outside. And on one side of the driveway is Dustin's stretch limo because they don't want him to drive home. And on the other side is the is an AMC Pacer. I don't know. You remember those? Oh, God. And he says, that's it. That's my car. Isn't that my car? And I watched. He, he did it for the same reason. I'm watching Dustin Hoffman's face trying to think, do I tell him that's a piece of shit? No. <laughs> what, no. what am I going to say? Now, that was my only Hollywood party, and I loved the story. Then it's, it's a change again for you to play lead roles? What, what is the first no, lead role? No, no, there's no lead role. No. Until I, when? I think Ray was so pissed off that I'd shown up at that party, and Jimmy Coco and I had got, gotten stoned, and we stayed so late, and that uh, I couldn't get arrested in uh, for film. I didn't get another you do film. You TV? I did mostly, uh, you know, uh, thanks to Norman. Norman's shows, I did almost all of Norman's shows, and then I moved out, you know, I would start to do bad guys and, you know, one-offs. More in series? Te- in television, series. Did you have your own series? No, 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 no. no never got you another. Just, you never started in no, another series? Never got, and never touched. And my agent then would, you know, send out and they'd say, no, no, we know who he is. He's a situation comedy actor. She'd say, no, no, he does Shakespeare. He's done, kind of, you know, he's done theater for 10. And so finally, it, they sent me this silly script, you know, about a kid's movie called uh, Babe. And uh, right. and uh, I looked at the thing that was about, I had about 16 lines. And I was, I thought, ah, Jesus. And I, my friend said to me, listen, it's a free trip to Australia. If the picture goes in the toilet, it's not your Who picture, cares? it's the pig's right. picture. Yeah, the pig. So, so what the difference? So I went and They're I- They're going to run the pig up the flagpole, not you. And I said to myself, look, I don't have any responsibility in this. I'm playing next to a pig. All I have to do is show up and enjoy this. 
and enjoy these people. Now, I love Australia, and I love Australians. I just had a ball, a few run-ins with George Miller, who I'm also very fond of, but we're... we're different <laughs> we people. Do, different people. Chris Noonan did the Chris, first one. Chris Noonan did the first one, which is why the first one has as much heart as it does. And George is a, a medical, doctor. Medic, medical doctor, and he has a focus. He has a vision, as you can tell from the things that he does. And you can see what's inherent in that vision, that amount edgy. of vi- edgy violence, um, you know, the, the outsider. Uh, I think— uh, The world is a tough place. Uh, the world is a really, really tough Babe place. Babe, in the city. The, and, that city is a tough place. A t- tough place, as opposed to, to Noonan's, which is, no, no, we all should embrace. We have to embrace. Yeah. We have to include people. We must morning in America. That's right. Fucking wonderful. So, um, last scene— I'm supposed to, at this contest, I'm supposed to, you know, say, away to me pig. And the pig goes and gets all the sheep. And they go through this entire course with no, no, nothing from me. And they go right. I open the gate. This only sound you hear, the creaking of the gate. The, the sheep go right past me. I move the gate like this. There's a click as the latch falls. The pig was first take magnificent. And the animals, to do it with sheep is almost impossible to get them to walk in unison, which they did. The next shot was I had to turn to the pig and say, that'll do, pig. That'll do. I said to Chris, where do you want me to take it? He said, "Uh, let me take it right into the lens. And I said, okay. I I had, you know, all the time that I had been doing the show, I'd never really actually looked at the makeup. So I, I do the thing and I turn to the camera and I look, and it's not me. It's my father. And I say, that'll do, pig. That'll do. But what I heard in my head was, that'll do, Jamie. That'll do. <sighs> and it was a gift from my father to me. <sighs> I'm sure he was there. Isn't it amazing how you do a movie and, and you make, you know, Countless TV shows, and you do you, you have these supporting parts and these character parts, and countless films and TV shows, and then you made that movie. How old were you? They shot that uh, one fifteen was, years ago, twenty. Yeah, yeah thirty, fifty. Yeah. So you're knocking around Hollywood for thirty years, yeah. and you basically grew up there and part of your life. And this is the movie that just blows up. It blows up. Yeah. This is the movie when everybody sees you, they're like, that'll do, pig. My family, we went around for t- all these years. I mean, maybe recently we stopped because my daughter's older. Yeah. But my, we, my, 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 I'd be ordering lunch with my daughter. She's like, I'm going to have, uh, you know, a salad with chickpeas and this. And I'd say, anything else? <laughs> and she'd say, maybe I'll have a nice tea. Anything else? Else? Like the dog says, the pit bull, the <laughs> evil pit bull, the tough pit bull. I mean, that sequence where the pig almost drowns oh, yeah. oh, in the wo- oh man, yeah, oh my god. Really tough. We watched that movie a hundred times. I've seen that movie a yeah. hundred. Yeah, I'm not exaggerating. You know, you know, you said that uh, the one of the reasons that I think I have the career, besides of what Carol's contribution was, was that the next film I did was L.A. Confidential, which was. Curtis uh, Hansen knew what he was doing because right. he didn't want the audience. He didn't want to tip the gag, the turn at the end when I killed Kevin, and uh, and I remember doing that picture and uh, had 
no idea what how good it was because I had a lot of problems with Curtis, bless his heart. Uh, we had a lot of fights, and uh, I, I fight with directors. Um, and when you say fight, I mean, I mean, I appreciate what you're saying because I've had two experiences in my life where I didn't even speak to the director during the making of the film. I mean, the, the conversation was to a minimum. You know, they come up to me and. You know, I would just uh, stare at the ground and never make eye contact with them. And I thought, you know, I thought they're going to hurt me because they want me to read their unconscious mind. They don't know what they want. No, they don't. So if they tell me I, the, there's something they want me to do that I don't agree with them, I'm out. Or if they don't know what they want me to do, I'm out. Because uh. I'm like, I can't, you know, make up. So when you're with Hanson, what do you uh, uh, debate with him? Well, Curtis really knew what he wanted. Right. But he was basically an editor. He, he didn't. He he didn't know how to talk to actors. Right. And he didn't know, you know, what our methodology was, right. and so I came into the rehearsals with a lot of ideas, things that I wanted to do, and basically got no and no explanation. You know, can I do this? Can I? This is a makeup. Can I have a cat? Can blend? No, no, no. I got so bad. I went to Milton. Don't sit. Take him out to lunch. You know, and tell him what your problem is. I didn't wind up doing that. And I remember that uh, I, you know, I had been nominated for Babe, and then, mm-hmm. and Kevin had won. So we shot it. We we the rehearsal came. I, I would see Russell leave the rehearsal, like steam coming out of his ears, which is normal, sort of normal for him. <laughs> and then and then Kevin showed up, and he had a new Mercedes, and he had a little cell phone, the first cell phone, and an assistant because he won the Academy Award. Sure. And so we're sitting there, and. Uh, I've, I'm so frustrated because everything I have suggested has been no. And we, he's, Kevin stops and says, the, the line was, Rolo Tomasi. And that's all his line was. And it had been changed to Rolo Tomasi, he knows, and you're effed. Fucked. And he said, Curtis, listen, the line is much better if it's just Rolo Tomasi. He knows, and you're fucked. Is an I've heard that line a hundred times, and anyway, the audience is wait. And I thought, oh boy, now now we're going to see. Now the Academy Award winner is now confronting him. Maybe he'll have more weight instead of a nominee. Curtis got up out of his seat, walked around the table, stood behind Kevin, so Kevin could not see him, and said, "Kevin, I want you to say the line the way it was written." Kevin said, "Yeah, listen, that's your picture. I'm just telling you from my point of view, it's much better the way." So we got to the table read just before we shot and the line was still Rolo Tomasi he knows and you're fucked I said to Kim what are you going to do he said well, I'm not going to say it he said I've been doing this for 50 years no one's ever said no you don't say no you say we'll do it both ways do it your way we'll do it my way um, in edit let me choose so we get finally get to the scene in the meantime during the whole picture I have asked for and all it's been is no everything no explanation <laughs> finally he my best scene with Russell I had a wonderful speech. He came to me in the middle of the speech and in the middle of the shoot and said, "Jamie, I want to cut that speech." I, and I, I thought, "Oh, I got to get out of this." So I said, "Oh, oh, I'm sorry, Curtis. I, I don't think I can do it without. I need that transition in order to get." And he, I remember him looking at me like, "You idiot! I can cut it out and post you, jerk. You want to take time now to do a piece? I'm going to cut out." So, so at the, I, you know, I, I have the gun. I turn around to Kevin. I shoot him. I say, have you a benediction, Boyle? And he goes, Rolo Tomasi, and dies. And I think, oh, what's what's going to happen? Yeah. Sure enough, Curtis comes down the hall, says, Kevin, I want you to see the line the way it was written. Kevin goes, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I turn around, shoot him again. Have you a benediction, Boyle? 
Rollo Tomasi. And he dies. I realized he was going to die every time. Now, Curtis realized that, too, and instantly said, okay, it's fine. I got it. I don't need that. I don't need the line. So I think, oh, now I know what to do. Persist. Persist. So I get to the last scene where I shoot Guy Pierce, and Guy says, Rolo Tomasi, and my line is, who is he? But I know that my character has already done a complete search in Los Angeles. There is no such guy. So I've changed it to, what about him? Guy Pierce says, oh, that's great. You're going to say that? I said, yeah, I'm going to say it. So I say it in rehearsal. Dante Spinotti is setting up the, uh, lighting the, the scene, and I'm standing outside by the car, and Curtis comes up to me and says, Jamie, I want you to say the line the way it was written. But instead of doing it, Kevin, I said, you I scream. I'm screaming at him. I'm kicking dirt at him. I punch the car, and he just stands there like, if you quit, you asshole, you will never work in this town again. I, we will sue you. Do you think he didn't like actors? No. He knew something that I didn't know. Which was? He knew at that point that the audience was already past it, that it really didn't matter what the line was. Right. When I saw, first saw it the first time, the audience as a whole had an intake of breath when I shot him. Like, oh, the guy from Babe shot him. <laughs> the guy from Babe shot him. <laughs> so the director, he had a vision. Right. He knew what he wanted. Right. He was right about the gag. He was right in saying no to me all through the picture. So it worked. Now, I want to get to this last step because we're going to run out of time here, which is you've been active in a lot of environmental causes and animal rights causes. Uh, you work with PETA. I've worked with PETA. Yeah. When did all that begin for you? Um, got back from Babe. First thing so happened. So in your 50s? Yeah. And PETA calls up and says, listen, would you do the narration on this thing about 4-H pigs in the Midwest and what happens to them over the summer when the kids are not watching? Well, I said, yes. I'm, I didn't know the organization at all. And did that, and then they start to ask for more, you know, would you do a slaughterhouse one? And <laughs> Ingrid and Dan Matthews got you. The best. The best. I, yeah. adore, I adore them. I adore the organization. I think it's the best. Um, so I got involved in that. And then um, mostly animal rights work and then came east and got involved in this, you know, energy work. I'm, I've been working on that. Now we're trying to stop this pipeline uh, we got arrested, and we, you know, I, we went to prison for uh, basically not fa- paying the fine for blocking traffic. We refused to pay the fine and do community service. I said, "No, stupid! I'm not going to justify your crappy opinion." How long? Only four days. Only four days. It was supposed to be a week. The reason it's only four days was they, you know, you're three days in quarantine because you get a uh, a test for uh, drug resistance tuberculosis, and once you pass that test, then you go into the general population. But the organizing factor in these prisons is rape. So the first thing they say to you when you get in there and you're doing your, 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 your asked questions by a guy who's sitting up there, and he said, uh, are you afraid of being raped while you're being here? And I said, I joked. I said, not unless they're a lot hornier than I think they are. He didn't laugh. Then he said, are you afraid that you'll rape someone? Now I'm trying to think, wait a minute. He's talking to a 77-year-old man. Then I got in there and I under- began to understand what that is. How? If you do not want to be raped, you have to rape in order to establish your bona fides with the rest of the inmate population. It's through violence. 
you can't beat somebody up because you get extra time, but raping happens so quick in the bathroom, wherever the fuck it's going It happens all the time. Oh, 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 it's endemic. It, every day, every day. And it's not only, it's not only the, the cons that do it. It's the guards that do it. They do it, too. They and rape the inmates. They rape the inmates, both male and female. So I, I saw this. I saw this, this continuation of the violence that mostly people of color experience on, in, in their communities. And it is completely and utterly unjust, undemocratic, unethical. It's poison. It poisons the community, deprives us of, of the contribution. It only makes things worse. Uh, absolutely. Well, you are, you know, among the most admired actors and activists at the same time in the business. People just are, are so... Your dad was this prominent film director and your mom an actress and you go to TV and then you have a family. Then you do Babe and you get nominated for an Academy Award and it all leads to you going to prison and we're going to get you out of there before they knock your teeth out and rape you. That'll do, Jamie. Bless your heart. That'll do. <laughs> James Cromwell's remarkable life in Hollywood and in the streets. This is Alec Baldwin. You're listening to Here's the Thing. Some cars are comfy on the inside, but don't have power on the outside. And some cars have the horsepower, but none of the comfort. I used to think there weren't any cars that were the total package. But that all changed when I got my Honda SUV. It's rugged and sophisticated. And right now, Honda has deals on the entire Honda SUV lineup. CRV, HRV, Pilot, Passport, you name it. So if you're looking for a car that's the total package, the only place you'll find it is at your local Honda dealer. Hurry before they're all gone. 50 years in the future, Texas is racked by civil war. Follow the tale of three people struggling to make their way in this chaotic world of war zones, militias, and extremists. Introducing After the Revolution, a new fiction podcast based on the novel by journalist Robert Evans. He'd grown up in Ciudad de Muerta, back before the lake would blast, back when people had still called it Dallas. Listen to After the Revolution on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.